Hello, Spacers. From Austin, Texas, I'm Christopher Schmidt, and today's show is a special one. It's a live Q&A session for the first ever ATX Web Film Series presentation. ATX Film Series is a group that aims to provide nights of thought and discussion-provoking films about the web, design, and technology. Our first night was the will feature showing the crowdsourced-funded What Comes Next is the Future by Matt Griffin for its Austin, Texas premiere. After that, they showed Code, Debugging the Gender Gap, which is directed by director Robin Hauser Reynolds. After the Code documentary, we had a great panel consisting of director Matt Griffin from What Comes Next is the Future, the design instruction manager Sam Camp from the Iron Yard, Austin campus director Whitney O'Banner from the Bootcamp, and host Annette Priest, who runs her own user experience consultancy. I will apologize first, right out of the gate, and say the audio is not the world's best. In future events uh, for ATX Web Film Series, we hope to get more of a direct feed to the audio. But I think it was just a great discussion about gender inequality in the workplace that I felt like we should just capture and put it to not just a time capsule, but hopefully something that uh, everyone learns more about. And that's definitely that's one of the things I think ATX Web Film Series wants to do is have a discussion and make sure those discussions go out into the universe. So and I'm really grateful for uh, for having this discussion on the Non-Breaking Space show. Before we get started, some notes on where I'll be and some words more sponsors. First up, CSS DevConf 2016. The Alamo is almost here. It takes place October 17th and 18th in, in San Antonio, Texas. I am super excited because I am day-to-day <laughs> of grind of getting the logistics in order for it. Uh, literally every day we're doing something, uh, trying to dot the I's and cross the T's on a great event. Um, so definitely come out. Uh, there's Chris Coyer, Jen Simmons, Rachel Andrew, Snook, Trent Walton. So many great speakers, but also new speakers, fresh voices, talking about content and front-end workflows that will help you into the next year. So it's, it's going to be great. You'll be hearing more about what happens here next year. So why don't just come here and see where it all starts at CSS DevConf. Learn more and register now at CSSDevConf.com. Also, be sure to follow Environments for Humans at E4H on Twitter for front-end development links throughout the day. Also, we'll be the first to know about online conferences for UX designers, like SAS Summit, UX Web Summit, and many, many more. So follow E4H, that's the letter E, the number four, the letter H, on Twitter. Did, did you know that you could set it and forget it with the non-breaking space show newsletter? Whenever a new episode is ready, you can have it show up directly into your inbox by signing up at newsletter.nonbreakingspace.tv. That's newsletter.nonbreakingspace.tv. You can find show notes and links discussed in today's episode at nonbreakingspace.tv. And be sure to follow me on Twitter at Teleject, T-E-L-E-J-E-C-T. As always, thank you for subscribing, commenting, and liking, and telling others about the Nonbreaking Space show on iTunes. And with that... Let's get on with the show. Our founder of Bearded Studios and our film director of our first feature that we saw this evening, Matt Griffin. And we have Whitney O'Banner, who is a uh, former Apple, former Amazon, uh, and former instructor. She is campus director of Dev Bootcamp. And Dev Bootcamp has a diversity and inclusion focus. 
Uh, on October 24th, they have a cohort starting in uh, web dev, Ruby, and JavaScript. And so, uh, I would like to get some thoughts from our panelists on the movie that we just saw. So, Sam, I wanted to start with you and get some thoughts from you on how has disenfranchisement based on gender affected the students that you're seeing uh, in your coding classes? That's a great question. Hi, everyone. I can't see you. Well, I just have to think about that movie for a few minutes. Yeah. That was actually the first time I was seeing it, so lots of feelings about that and a lot of self-reflection and furious note-taking. I apologize to the front row who heard me like scratch it's kind of crazy. What I didn't expect um, at the Iron Yard or teaching at Texas State before that um, and getting into, or I guess back into the web after taking a hiatus in fifth grade um, <laughs> was thinking, oh yeah, the code, that's going to be the hard stuff. The CSS stuff, the responsive stuff, that's going to be the tough stuff to teach. Not at all. It's actually sitting down with students and telling them that they can do this because they never have heard that before. That's the hard part. Whitney, do you want to weigh in on that as well? Yeah, first of all, I think the film was fantastic. I'm also still trying to process that. I was one of those saying it, um, and it was incredible. It struck a lot of chords with me personally. Um, but absolutely, I cannot agree more. Um, and that's that's with anything, right? Like sitting down and telling someone else that they can do something, they can achieve something, um, especially if you, you've done it and you say, hello, I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm an anecdote, I'm personal story, right? So are you, are you feeling like, like women and other minorities are uh, needing that reinforcement or wanting that more than other folks who are coming? You know, if you've got white men in your classes, is there any behavioral difference or expectational difference? Yeah, for these underrepresented groups that we talk about women and ethnic minorities, uh, the stereotype threat, which they mentioned in the, the film, is very real. Um, and when you're up against that, when you're up against imposter syndrome, when you're up against um, a lot of uh, previous learning of, that they can't do something or that they're not capable of doing something, um, it takes a lot for them to sort of unlearn that, right, and make themselves, um, sort of put themselves in a position to where they're capable of learning and they're able to it's really interesting that we are in an industry that has an error message or a, a good way to write code or a better way to write code, but there's this like very black and white binary sort of, there's one right way and one wrong way, and if it's wrong, you'll get a console log error, but that's not how a lot of these conversations work. There's a lot more to it, so when you're trying to inject that into something that only has two sides of the coin, that's that changes the perspective a little bit. So, Matt, you uh, directed our first feature film of the evening, and I, I thought that you did a great job of including a lot of different voices and different perspectives. Um, any thoughts from you on the film that we've just seen? Well, it certainly looked like more work than that film I made. <laughs> I, I'm thinking there's more than one person making or working on that film. That was I was impressed. After making a tiny film, I was like, now I watch every. Movie I just want to underscore this: it's not a competition. No, 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 <laughs> no. But now that I've made a, like a tiny film, I go and watch other films. I'm like, oh man, that looks really hard. <laughs> I 
And that would have taken me 10 years. So let me give you some encouragement. Your film was really good. Oh, we thanks. enjoyed your film. <laughs> well, thanks. No, I, yeah, I didn't mean it in a comparative. I mean, I guess I was a comparative way. But not in a way to diminish myself. But that, um, you know, I mean, it was in, incredibly affecting, of course. I mean, it was, that was a, um, I mean, you all sat there and watched it. Right? <laughs> So, so I guess what I'm wondering, Matt, about yeah. your creative process is at what point or how did it occur to you to be sensitive to that, to be including oh, other perspectives? Sure. Um, gosh. I mean, I guess from the, from the beginning it was certainly a concern. Um, to, to, you know, so my experience before making a film was in having a business, a design business, right? And when you... When you start a business, um, you don't generally have any idea what you're doing unless you've started a business before, which I hadn't. Um, so you just sort of do a lot of things without thinking about it. And for me, hiring was one of those things. I'd never hired people before. And when I started hiring people, I just hired people I knew um, because I had no other process for doing that. Um, and so it's not surprising that my first hires were other white guys. You know? <laughs> those were people that I had contacts with. Um, and then uh, our first women hires were also just people that I knew, right? Um, so at a certain point then, um, it became a conscious decision where he said, that's something that we want to do, that I realized having other perspectives is very helpful in the workplace. So I think with the film, it was a similar thing, or at least I had that knowledge from the business going into it, that um, I wanted to have a more balanced perspective on the film. It wasn't just people like me talking. So sometimes we hear, you know, we hear things about the pipeline, I, I think, our panelists uh, are working to resolve that issue, right, by, by creating new coders all the time. Uh, but when those coders graduate from these programs, they are put up against often other teams that are not diverse or necessarily inclusive or sensitive to that. And we often hear about culture fit. So I, I invite all of our panelists to weigh in on culture fit and how you can over, how you can potentially overcome that as somebody who is possibly perceived as different or other. Any strategies that you're sharing with your students? Sure, I could, I could start probably with a little bit of a more personal side or personal experience side, which um, I think they touch on in the movie, that personal experience side is really what can help make the conversations more diverse, hopefully. Um, definitely through being a woman of color who's from outside the country, who's still here on a work visa, um, who came from a design background which is known to be a little bit more female oriented at least in like the BFA art school uh, in a university perspective. Uh, I think being, spending years of sort of apologizing to others for, well, I'm different, so I'm sorry. Uh, and going from that to sort of the other side after stepping away from, from being that as a student and then seeing that from the instructor perspective of, I have that opportunity to really change that. And I'm like, I'm not sorry. I'm not sor sorry if I'm going to tell one of my students that she should quit her job because of these specific reasons um, that are not okay because of that culture fit or whatever it is. Um, I think a lot of it is, again, that encouragement and also just 
people don't necessarily know it's not the right way to go um, or that it's not appropriate to have that sort of culture in the workplace for the reasons that we saw. And media has a lot to do with that, right? Because the, the I think it was in the 80s, the commercials that were like personal computer, men, business, suit and ties, that's what changed that perspective that we saw in the 50s and 60s. Um, that same sort of thing is something we're seeing now. Jessica Jones, for example, she's a superhero who doesn't wear the tight outfit. She wears like whatever she wants to go kick butt. Um, two weeks ago with Megan Smith, who's in this movie, we were with her at the White House announcing the Opportunity Project or, uh, Fund and Carrie Beach, who's one of the um, developers in Halt and Catch Fire, which is an amazing show. She's one of really two is. female Huge fan. developers on the show, and like she's the star of the show, and she was talking about how if you put the example out there, which has been hidden for such a long time, that changes the narrative. Yeah, I also want to um, in, invite everybody to uh, take a look under the conference room table uh, the next time you're in an important meeting at your workplace. And don't be creepy. But uh, <laughs> what I want you to look at is the shoes. If all of the shoes are the same, you do not have a diverse meeting. That's one trick. Whitney, did you have something to add? Yeah, culture fit. Culture fit was something I heard all the time in Silicon Valley, um, and I, it came with a lot of rejections from companies um, where I wanted to work. And you know, it's it's so interesting. We're, we, you know, you and I may not have the same conversations at our dinner table with our family, right? Like, uh, we we have different cultural experiences. Uh, we have different networks of friends. We have different movies that we watch, um, music we enjoy. And uh, to hear that you are not a culture fit uh, for a company is, can be so disheartening um, for our graduates. Uh, for those reasons, it's, it's what is culture fit, right? What does it mean to fit into to a culture, um, especially when you're talking about um, uh, the tech culture, which we want to diversify, which we want to make more inclusive. Um, so at WCAMP, we, we have three agreements of integrity, kindness, but one of those is whole self, and that's about bringing your whole authentic self to the program every single day. Um, whether that you're an introvert and really shy, and you want to you know, sit up in the corner and do your own thing, um, whether you're funny and boring and A-type, uh, what, you know, you like certain films that nobody's seen before, you know, a foreign film, whatever the case, just, just bring all of you and be fully transparent and vulnerable around us in this safe space. And we want the graduates to lead with that and enter the industry with that, uh, so that when they're told they're not a culture fit or they're rejected as a result, um, they can see that as, as a good thing. That's, that's not the company for them, right? That's not where you should be. Um, so take that no or take that rejection as a blessing in disguise, um, because we've, we've sort of educated you in this 19 weeks to bring your whole authentic self, and if someone rejects that, or if they feel it's not a good fit uh, for their company, then you know, look at the next one. Look at the next opportunity. So I, I think that's terrific. It's really important. Um, I've, I've tweeted a link to a, a study that came out in the past year that was put out by Personality and Social Psychology Bulletin in June of 2014 and updated recently. Um, it's actually a series of three different studies that say some really interesting and important and provocative things, too. Um, you know, one of the premises of, of the film is that women in leadership are really crucial to 
moving diversity forward in tech. Um, and that's a wonderful perspective, but it's also a difficult thing to accomplish um, since even men who are committed to gender equality uh, can sometimes be biased. Um, these studies showed that even men who said they were uh, committed to equality still showed behavior that is punishing towards women leaders and that they felt more threatened by women leaders. So this is something for everybody to be aware of uh, just in terms of the own, the, your own biases that you may be bringing to things. Uh, another part of that research focused on the types of networks that women are more successful in and collaborative and cohesive networks are really important, in part because it's the only kind of network that doesn't penalize women. So that's something else to be aware of because, um, as Matt's already alluded to, so much of hiring is about the network that you have, and the network that you have is developed by not only who you've gone to school with and where you learned how to code and got exposed to tech, but also the people that you've worked with. At 20 years into my tech career now, I'm really excited that I just found out that somebody that I worked with early in my career just got promoted today to management. She's now managing the Advanced Machine Learning Lab for Symantec. She has a PhD in computer science from Berkeley. So that's super rad, right? But she also has had to work really hard to overcome some of that. So I wonder uh, if our panelists have any additional perspectives on, uh, on being penalized as women leaders. All I can think about is that article from about a week ago, I guess it was when it started showing up on my Slack and Twitter, and it was, women, you'll be fine in the workplace. I, I don't know if it took this tone, but that was sort of my interpretation after the fact that, that if you take this tone and then you have your female leadership buddy who repeats the same thing, it'll be heard now, and that's equivalent to one you know, male. Right. So this is this is about shine theory, and the whole premise is like, when I shine, you shine. When you shine, I shine. And so it's about women amplifying each other's voices because we're so often interrupted in meetings by male colleagues, and those male colleagues, intentionally or not, are oftentimes claiming credit for the ideas that we've just spoken. Yeah, and it's it, that's a really tough pill to swallow, and one that I probably don't swallow quietly, um, and just say nope, that's not going to happen, and I'll just say it louder. Or, um, and if there are people to defend that, great. And I think um, why, and maybe this doesn't solve anything, but I think one of the reasons why Shine Theory is, it has sort of multiple perspectives, I think. Um, some people look at it as that camaraderie, and some people look at it as we shouldn't have to do this, and I battle with both sides. And I think the students that I talk to and developers that I talk to battle with both sides, but... Uh, I think a part of it is, too, because we empathize. We've been put in that position in the past. We wear those shoes, and that's what's sort of informing our actions from, from that point. It goes back to the experience, and um, that if we are sitting at the table and having more of those open conversations, um, that's when maybe we can start to change them, even though we haven't had that ex experience ourselves. I just want to say, this is so great. I'm loving hearing from the other panelists and, and thanking everyone here for listening. This is fantastic. Um, being penalized. No, I, I'd say the, the greatest penalty is, is in my wardrobe choice. Um, this is about as dressed up as you're going to catch me. Um, 
So that probably look a little nice I'm today. super excited you brought up wardrobe. Let's yeah. talk about this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I used to just be so um, uh, disgruntled at the fact that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg kind of parade around in his hoodie and, you know, sort of be seen as like this rogue uh, leader of, of a company. And for me, you know, I would want to go in in my hoodie and comfortable pants and sneakers, you know, and, and still... Um, you know, uh, be a leader uh, and be, be seen as a leader and um, respected as a leader. Uh, but, you know, I was always told, well, maybe you should put on some heels or maybe you might want to put on a little bit of makeup, you know, just to, to have that appeal, right? Um, and it's like, what, how, why am I now being penalized as a woman for, you know, having to, um, for wanting to dress down um, instead of, you know, uh, appeal to, to someone's aesthetic? So, so jeans and hoodies are the de facto uniform of techies everywhere, as long as they're male, right? right? And and the expectation, the double standard, is that women have to, women are not necessarily business casual. I mean, if you're being instructed to wear heels, that's not business casual. That's business but formal. Sam's wearing sneakers, right? I'm wearing boots because I. Okay, close. Okay, really so I would <laughs> panelists, if you would all just raise one foot. I would, I would like you to take a look at our footwear and see we're all wearing different shoes. We passed the shoe test. And I hope that everybody at your company and on your teams also passes the shoe test. And I hope that you start doing the shoe test. And that's one way I think that we can start changing the culture. Other ideas about changing the culture and maybe, maybe taking us away from programmer dominance? Oh, man. I'd love to take us away from programmer dominance. Um, I just, uh, something that occurred to me about kicking over my water on microphone cable. <laughs> One of my many skills is kicking over water. It's okay, I've worked with, like, I remember I have an audio engineer, my original training. It's so you totally won't be electrocuted safe. then? Okay, no, this is like 48 volts, it's cool. It's not a big deal. I'm a fan of power, guys. It's not going to shock anybody. It's a scary name, but it won't shock anybody. Um, something that's screwed me while we've all been talking about this and, and changing perspectives. So I mentioned like early on in the career, uh, doing a lot of things I think we all do um, without really thinking about it too much because you, you're just trying to figure out how to get through the day at that point. Um, and I think one of the tough things being like a white heterosexual male in an industry where you want to see change like this happening is reminding yourself that Having behaviors that adversely affect other people, um, not by intention, um, doesn't necessarily make you a bad person if you're trying to become more aware of them and change. I think a thing that blocks a lot of people, when I see people being angry on Twitter or whatever, I think what I read coming out of that is, if I admit that what I'm doing is a problem, then I'm a bad person, uh, that I'm doing something bad. Right? Um, and so all I have to do is not admit that what I'm doing is a problem, and then everything's fine. Then I'm a great person. I don't need to change. Um, so I think that's been one of the, the important things for me to try and get a hold on. It's like, yeah, sometimes I am a bad person, um, intentionally or unintentionally. Um, but the important thing is not to, to then say, like, okay, I'm a bad guy. I'm going to go feel terrible about it. But to say that that's a, that's a negative behavior and something that you need to recognize and try to change. Yeah, but I, I think it, admitting you have a problem is the first step, right? Yeah, that doesn't necessarily. That somebody said that. Uh, that doesn't necessarily have to be done 
publicly, like, no. like right? Especially like you, know, you don't have to tweet. You know, you don't have okay. to self-flagellate on no, Twitter, right? Because there's a whole other set of like feedback right. loopy sort of problems right. with you know congratulating yourself for being terrible uh, publicly, <laughs> right? Like that. That just gets yucky real fast. No, I think privately is a good place to do that. Yeah. Okay. So uh, thought, thoughts on coming to some, have you come to any difficult awareness? Well, I think the Sorry to be on the spot no, 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 with a professional okay. in front of his movie theater, but... I mean, it's it's not often you get a white guy in front of a microphone so that he can answer these questions. For <laughs> <laughs> no, that's the best trick I could come up with there. Um, yeah, I mean, like, for hiring, for example, like, early on in the business, I just kept hiring white guys. Um, and I wasn't particularly thinking about Can it. Can I ask, did you do a code test or any kind of thing like that? <laughs> no, I'm a designer. I don't... Yeah. You know? <laughs> Um, so I just I like, just want to give a shout out to that right that the the data actually very strongly supports that if you can do anything blindly, you will have a better shot of hiring based on merit than anything else because unconscious bias is so powerful. This applies to uh, symphony musicians, not just web developers, yeah, right? So assign people an ID that's random, like get your HR department or somebody else to take care of that for you so you're not seeing that and have a, have a pool of applicants apply at the same time and evaluate things on their merits before you know who they are. That's my suggestion. Go ahead. So I think like one shift I made, for instance, when we talk about like culture fit, for example, uh, I would never have used that term, but one of the things that I, I used to say was like, I want to hire people that I want to work with all day. Um, which I think is a reasonable sentiment because um, you have to work with them all day. Um, you don't want to hire, you know, jerks. Um, but I think what that starts leading you down, potentially if you're not thinking about it too much, is a path of like, I want to hire people that like the music I like so we can listen to the same music in the room together. Or I want to hire people that read the books I've read so that we can talk about books at lunch. I want to hire people just like me. And then that quickly turns into I'm hiring people just like me. Um, so what I've realized is what I, I really need out of that statement, I want to hire people I want to work with all day, um, is I want to hire people that are, that are kind to each other, or people that are, support each other, or help each other solve problems together, um, who can contribute something meaningful to the work that we're doing, and something that we don't have right now. Um, and that starts getting you into hiring people that um, may listen to totally different music, or may have a different religious or cultural background, or whatever it is. Um, and that's what we started doing. Um, and it meant that I hired people that I initially might not think, I want to go hang out with them at lunch. Um, but then you do hang out with them a lot. And then your world you brought in. And then your world you brought in. We're, we're all much better for it, I think. And, and, and what I've also found is that the work got a lot better. So say more about that. What, what about the work got better? When you don't have a bunch of people um, working from the exact same perspective and background, um, people who have grown up doing the same things and reading and listening to and uh, solving the same sort of problems and playing the same video games and seeing the same outcomes, um, you tend to get ideas for solving problems that are different in a room. You get more competing ideas. So like when we're, we do a lot of user experience work, so when we're talking about trying to solve a user experience problem in a, in a helpful way, getting people that are bringing different perspectives and coming up with different competing ideas and letting those sort of um, battle it out in the room is great. I mean, we get much more uh, innovative, I think, and interesting solutions out of competing perspectives. It kind of goes back to what your movie talks about a little bit when we think about the um, W3C, everything that responsive uh, images group had to do and 
all that sort of stuff, even accessibility as this idea of like everything in the web should have this. Um, it started as this like it doesn't exist, but someone brought it up, then we should have a conversation with it. We should stretch this out as far as we can, and then we scale back to the reasonable, this is the way to operate in that area. And that's exactly sort of, I hope, what will be what happens with this conversation of we are stretching it past, like we've done the recognizing of the problem side, and then the next part is putting those things in place, the polyfills, if you will, and, and other stuff, and then eventually building standards in for that. So before we take any questions from the audience, I wanted to get Whitney's perspective on retention. So the film that we just saw was citing a statistic that says that 41% of women will leave tech at the 10-year ten, ten mark compared with 17% of men at the same point. Any thoughts on how we can keep women in the workforce once they're in tech? So once we've made the pipeline problem irrelevant, they're already there, how do we keep them? Your response to chicken and egg problem, right? We need more women there, keep more women there. Um, but I, I, it's, we're in such an interesting time right now, right? Like this is a hot topic, diversity and inclusion, how we keep women in tech. Um, and I just, I see this transformation happening. I take a step back and look at the big picture. Um, and I think we're already doing things to sort of combat that by opening up the conversation about it in the first place by having this very panel and watching films like these. Um, that's already changing the climate. To speak um, from you know, personal story, uh, I left tech. I, I was one of those women and I didn't hit the 10-year mark in my career and I think it's a three-year mark in my career and I said, okay, I've had enough of this. I can't, I can't hang anymore. I can't make, I can't. Uh. Can, can I ask Whitney, was it the constantly having to justify your existence? Oh, totally. At conferences, at beer bashes, at, you know, the, the social events that we have on campus all the time, you know, getting the question of if I was a marketing girl, if I was an intern or, you know, um, uh, it became exhausting. The day-to-day -day became exhausting, and as it was mentioned in the film, it's not the one comment or the two comments, it's the death by a thousand cuts, right? Um, and and so, yeah, I, I left, but uh, now it's so interesting, my perspective as campus director, um, I, I, I have the coolest job in the world, by the way, um, and I've found a way to sort of scale my influence and reach um, and touch more women who are like me. I see myself in them uh, before they even enter the industry or maybe they've been in the industry and, and taking stuff out. Um, and it's, it's so great to be able to speak from personal experience and give them that sort of push and that encouragement to stay. Um, and the only thing I can think of that's, that's really most encouraging right now is, um, is really showing them how things are changing, right? Like going into class tomorrow and telling them that I spoke on a panel about what it's like you know, to be a woman in technology and watching these amazing films the night prior, right? I get to share that experience with them and say, well, people are having these conversations. This is being talked about and this is being worked on actively. Um, so things are changing, um, but you must be present for that change to happen. You have to stay, you have to stake your claim for that to happen. Um, I talk about that a lot when I first my personal story is um, it's, it's enough to just show up show up at the table, um, and, and that's, that's what I ask of our women students, to show up, to be present, right, and help create this change for other people coming after you. Yeah, and I think for the women who are already there in the workforce, they just have to keep, 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 keep showing up, yeah, even though that can be hard. Okay, so if we have any questions at all from the audience, could you stand up and 
Yeah. Hi, I'm Cindy Royal, and I teach at Texas State University. I've got a couple students with me here tonight. And one of the things that the movie talked about and emphasized, and a lot of research studies emphasize, are the percentage of women in computer science programs. But you're seeing that, I mean, you taught um, students in a comm design program coding. You're obviously teaching all kinds of students in your boot camp. So it's not just the computer science pipeline that we're talking about. And right now I'm teaching a class in mass comm coding for communicators, 15 students, 14 are women. So I think there are other paths to reaching out and finding women and making it making coding like a relevant skill for them um, in the context in which they're already existing and not really putting so much emphasis on getting people into computer science. So yeah. I don't know what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I, my question to you is that's a communication class, yes? It's called coding, for, uh, coding and Data Skills for Communicators. Coding and Data Skills for Communicators. Mm -hmm. And do you find that just by framing it as communication or communicators is something that helps broaden the appeal or make it less intimidating? It is because that's the nature of our department, is that we have 60 to 70 percent females in the department as students. And so by offering in that department where women are already congregating uh, for the reasons that they You want have a critical to mass. We have a critical mass and we do it in a storytelling context. I think the context is also important as well as the critical mass. Great. Anybody want to weigh in comments on that? I think uh, one of the interesting things, and we were, we were talking about this with the computer science department there, they, they had that, you know, the exact problems that we hear about. Um, they go from maybe less than 25% females in freshman year to maybe one in a senior class. Um, and there is that sort of not staying, not staying in it. There is an environment that's created that they don't necessarily feel that way. We have to obviously change that dynamic and put more examples out there that that do sort of um, change the story, I mean, for lack of putting in other words. But at the same time, we also have to recognize that there's a lot of things that it's not just changing it now. Going back to that one um, student who was showing the three friends and they're all just sitting there and instead of a bird book, they're looking at a laptop to like, reference back to the Mean Girls thing. And... Um, just talking about like this is something you can do and there's ninja coders and you know whatever else and uh, I remember again going back to um, a few weeks ago at the computer science for all event with Megan Smith the Girl Scouts came up on stage and they said our pledge for CS for all which is what the event was for we want to pledge to do things but we'd also like to recognize that two of our patches have everything to do with CS and oh, by the way, those patches are 100 years old. And it's sort of recognizing that they're some of the oldest patches that exist in something that is for, for girls ages three, four, and five up was already there. And it was sort of not because of anyone's ill intent, but it sort of was pushed aside as there's other stuff that you need. Um, and to be able to bring that back and then also hear the Girl Scouts say, like, we're going to go to every city and pledge that every single Girl Scout has skills or that we're highlighting the STEM skills or STEAM skills, however you want to look at it, that's the type of stuff that needs to happen more of. And, and they've openly said that, and then they asked for help. And that's the sort of stuff that we as a community can do. I mean, we have a local Girl Scouts group. Like, they need volunteers. Please help them to code. Yeah, I would love it, too, if you would lobby them to do a, a, a patch or a badge for uh, game development 
uh, I just found out that there's a, a chapter out in the LA area that's doing that, and so I'm trying to get the, the local Austin uh, Game Developers Association to, to do a similar thing. Do, I think we have time for one more question from the audience, if there are any. Yeah, go ahead and stand up. Um, so, I have two very little girls at home, and the thing is, every time I watch like documentaries, we're making such good progress, but then I go home and I want to try to do something to make it better because invariably someone says something dumb to me about what they can or can't do, or like someone will say like around me at work like about their daughters and how it's different raising boys and girls and they have such different interests and energy. So like I'd like to try to help to do something when they're younger before everyone's telling them they can't do something, but I struggle with where to start and where to put some of like to make it productive anger. <laughs> <laughs> So is your is your question? My, my question is like, you know, after watching something like that, and people get kind of fired up, and everyone has their own personal experience. I've been in technology for a long time. Where can I start to try to help, like, at an earlier stage? Like, I'm, I can help somewhat locally, like with some of the folks I know. But I, I'd really like to understand, like, where I could help locally with, like, you know, younger girls or you know, kids in general to help them not go through some of these same things because it's so aggravating. So there's some local groups here in Austin. Uh, there's Gen Austin, which is Girls Empowerment Network, uh, and that is a local nonprofit you could get involved with. Um, there's Girl Start. Girl Start, yeah. Uh, and uh, Girl Develop It, I think, uh, if, if we want to start talking about, uh, you know, in the movie we saw one of those teenage girls talking about I think she was talking about a college-level class that she got into when she was 12, which is pretty badass, in my opinion. But, yeah, it sounded like it was just, like, not at the right level for her because the, the boys were already, you know, had already had years of experience doing that. So um, I would say if you get her into a girl development class uh, or, or work with your, check with your local school system, your, your local schools about who has computer science curriculum, uh, and maybe maybe look into ACC as well. Other advice? Have them fix your lawnmower. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of them was taking the lawnmower apart. <laughs> I think this is sort of a very quick one. It's not necessarily like take them to a class, but when you put stuff in front of them, whether they want to bake a cake or they want to fix the lawnmower, is just allowing the, the failure part so that they can get used to the feedback loop and the lawnmower's error cycle of things and, and sort of making the failure part and like tinker and it's okay so that when those roadblocks happen later, it's like, oh, that's just, that's just life throwing an error. I'll find a better way and get around that hurdle. So I think just like sort of embracing the, the failure side, uh, which is actually just a part of the process. I have a, a son, I have a six-year-old, almost seven-year-old son, and this is something that I think about a lot too, and, and I think something that was interesting about the last film is there's a lot of, um, obviously a lot of conversation about how do we encourage girls to feel better about themselves, but uh, something I didn't think was addressed as the parent of a boy was how do we encourage the boys not to make the girls feel worse about themselves? Um, but as his parents, that's one of our, uh, and his other parent is right there, but how, that's one of our jobs. Um,
I think that's a much more interesting question well, and much more profound. Well, I, and, I, and the way we've addressed that from very early on was just trying to give him um, a sense of just open gender roles. Um, that, that I remember also, um, and I think as, you know, as a parent of girls, I'm not going to sit here and give out parenting advice, I hope, but um, <laughs> as a parent of girls, I remember something that I read early on that really struck me was them saying, boys are always told something like, um, when they fail, they're saying, oh, you're just not trying hard enough. You just got to go back and try harder. And, and girls aren't told that. So when girls fail, they think, I failed because of me. And boys are told that when I fail, um, it's because I wasn't trying hard enough, but I can try harder, and then I can be better, right? Um, so I've consciously told him that a lot. And if I had a girl, I would certainly tell her the same thing. Is, you know, I know it was hard today, but tomorrow you're going to go back and just got to try a little harder. I, I think if you can work with the national brands on reinforcing that through t-shirts, that would be terrific. <laughs> yeah, because the, the boys' clothing and the girls' clothing has wildly different slogans on it. I don't know if you've noticed. I, Whitney, yeah. any, any thoughts on this last question from the audience? Uh, just expand their network. Um, and that's not just related to technology and coding, but make sure they're exposed to a variety of people because one day your daughters um, and your sons uh, will be in these hiring positions. Uh, and they will be faced with, okay, well, who from the network do I know, or who do I associate with, right? And as many people as they can be exposed to from all walks of life, um, they'll begin to reach from these various networks, right? And that's how we solve this problem, is we put people in those hiring positions um, who are aware of all these different perspectives from all over the world. Um, so just, you know, making sure that they're, you know, engaging with people, other children like them, um, with uh, or their age, I should say, um, from, from so many different backgrounds, from all over the world, um, different races, uh, different sexes, etc. Um, yeah, just expanding their network now. And travel can be good for that too, I think. So we're all out of time for the panel, but uh, there's obviously a lot more to talk about. So I hope that you will join us when we adjourn to the highball. I want to say thank you uh, to everyone for coming out on a Monday night for the very first ATX web film series. And thank you to our sponsors, The Iron Yard, Environments for Humans, and Majinko. And thank you to our panelists, Whitney O'Banner, Matt Griffin, and Sam Capilla. I am Annette Priest. Thank you and good night.